Now, last week we looked at the Day of Atonement, and actually Wednesday is the proper day, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is just the Hebrew word that means Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was the most solemn day of the year for the nation of Israel. It was the central day of the year for Israel because that was the day that the sins of the people, all of their sins, all of their iniquities were transferred, given to God, and they were atoned for. We also talked about how the Day of Atonement finds its ultimate fulfillment in the central event of all of Scripture. Do you know what the central event of all of the Scripture is? It is the crucifixion of Jesus. It is the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is not just the death of Christ. It is the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. It is the atonement of Christ upon the cross demonstrated to be effectual through his resurrection and his ascension to the Father. How do we know that the death and the atonement of Jesus was effectual for us? Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is not still on earth. He is at the right hand of the Father. And the blood he shed for his people, not one drop of it was wasted in atoning for our sin. Now I'm going to read two scriptures to you today. I've already read the first one to the children. 2 Chronicles 7.14 I want to read that and I want you to kind of tuck that away. And then I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 16 verses 29 through 34. So let's read 2 Chronicles 7.14 first. These are the words of God to Solomon. This was just after Solomon had dedicated the temple, the newly built temple in Jerusalem, the first temple. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. By the way, that those words were spoken to Solomon in the seventh month of the year, just as the Feast of Tabernacles. So we had trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. All of those occur within that first half of the month. So these words of God to Solomon and to the nation and to the people of God throughout all the generations were spoken by God in the very month that we're in now in terms of the Jewish calendar. So atonement, all of that had taken place. Not in the temple because the temple had not been completed yet. But in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, those were feasts that were kept and that blood was sprinkled for the atonement. And the temple was built and the ark was brought and it was placed behind the veil and the temple was dedicated 
And all of this occurred in the very time of year that we're in right now. And we go back to Leviticus chapter 16, and we read beginning in verse 29. Again, the Lord is speaking now here to Moses. Now we're backing up centuries, back to the time of Moses, when God gives to Moses the command concerning these feasts. Now we just read in 2 Chronicles the word of the Lord given to King Solomon centuries after the words were spoken to Moses when God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle to establish the feast and that Israel would keep these feasts each year perpetually, God said. Leviticus 16.29, this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. That word afflict means you shall humble yourself. And they did that through prayer and fasting. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen cloths, the holy garments, Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you for your word that is living and powerful and as sharp as a two-edged sword, that it cuts to the very heart of all the matters that concern us, opening us and exposing us to your truth. Father, we ask that your truth would set us free, that your gospel would change and conform us and transform us that we would be a people conformed to the very image of the Son of glory, that we would shine forth your light, that we would be salt in this earth, that we would be a witness for you and for your glory, that you would teach us and that you would show us the amazing privilege you have given to us to be called children of God. And the amazing honor that you give to us to be witnesses to you in this world. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy demonstrated so freely in our lives and around us all the time. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus Christ is our atonement. Remember, these feasts, all of these feasts, all seven of them, were given and they were road signs, flashing signs, pointing us to Jesus. And when Jesus came in his incarnation, he fulfilled these feasts and he still fulfills them. 
The fulfillment of these, pieces, of these feasts is not a past tense thing. They are perpetually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So as we read here in Leviticus 16.29, this shall be a statute forever for you. It's not that we're to be going to Jerusalem to a temple and offering the blood of bulls and goats for the atonement of our sins. Because God tore the temple down in 70 AD and God has not allowed the temple to be rebuilt. There is no ark anymore. There is no veil anymore. There is no holy of holies on this earth made by the hands of man anymore. That is gone. It's been gone for over 2,000 years. So is God contradicting himself? How shall this statute be kept forever in perpetuity? If the temple is no more and Israel cannot go into the temple and offer the blood of bulls and goats as God commands here, I'll tell you how it's kept. It's kept in Jesus Christ because the blood of bulls and goats were only pointing us. I just saw you. So good to see you this morning. The blood of bulls and goats were only road signs. They were only types and shadows of Jesus Christ who would shed his own blood. The high priest clothed in linen. And you know why he had to be clothed in linen? To cover his nakedness. But do you know what Jesus was on the cross? You know what we can't show no matter how graphic the depiction is, no matter how graphic the passion of the Christ was, graphically depicting the crucifixion of Jesus Do you know what it did not show? It did not show Jesus naked on the cross. There was nothing covering Jesus on the cross except his blood. Because anything made by the hands of man would have defiled the holiness of the Son of God hanging on that cross. But yet, this high priest was commanded to wear the linen garments to cover his sinful nakedness. In stark contrast to the reality of Jesus who would fulfill this feast by becoming our atonement on the cross. And in the shedding of his blood, in the, in the reality of Jesus, the graphic reality of Jesus on the cross, there was the holy Lamb of God covered in the very Blood that would atone for our sin. Not annually, not just now, but for eternity. And Jesus is not known to be the atonement for our sins in the past. He is the atonement for our sins eternally, perpetually. He is our atonement. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. He was our Passover lamb. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. He is the head of the year and the head of all things. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. He is the God who tabernacles among us. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. He is the first fruits. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. He is our unleavened bread. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. He is 
the feast of harvest. He is the outpouring of the Spirit. He was then, he is now, he will be forever. The feasts have not been fulfilled. They are being fulfilled perpetually, eternally in Jesus Christ. He is our atonement. And the atoning death of Christ with the shedding of His blood has cleansed the people of God from their sin, making them holy and acceptable to the Father. This is the foreshadowing work that was done on the Day of Atonement by the earthly high priest when he went into the temple and he went behind the veil and he went into the Holy of Holies and he made atonement for himself and he made atonement for the tabernacle and he made atonement for the people of God. All of that was pointing us to Jesus. And he had to atone for his own sins because he was a mortal son of Adam born in sin. And before he could take the atoning blood of the sacrifice, he had to make sure his own sins were covered. Jesus did not have to do that. Jesus didn't take the blood of bulls and goats. He took his very own blood to the Father. The high priest had to cleanse the all of the tabernacle. He had to cleanse the mercy seat. He had to cleanse the altar. He had to cleanse everything with blood. And it could only be cleansed by blood because of the defilement of the men that touched it and the men who worked in it. Their very nature defiled it. And they had to cleanse it by blood. Even the tabernacle, the holy places of God, had to be cleansed with blood, the blood of a sacrifice. But the book of Hebrews tells us that those were just copies. They were just copies, natural copies of the true tabernacle, of the true temple, of the true mercy seat, of the true ark, of the true altar, of the true lamp, of the true table of incense, of the true bread. Those were all copies, man-made copies that pointed to the real, to the true, who is Jesus Christ. And that earthly priest had to go in and he had to make atonement. And this is significant for us in Christ. Listen to what Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That very tabernacle that had to be cleansed by blood by that earthly high priest, even that priest was a type of Christ, but guess what? That priest was a type of you and I also. It was a type of you. It was a type of me. Because the Bible says that we are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen generation, a chosen people, a royal, a kingly priesthood, God's own special people, that we would proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light.
We are also the house of God. We are his tabernacle, his temple in the earth today. That earthly tabernacle and that earthly temple that was cleansed with blood was just a foreshadowing of the true tabernacle, who is the body of Christ. Remember when Jesus was in the temple. This is recorded for us in the beginning of John's gospel. And Jesus was in the temple and they said, look at this, look at this temple, Jesus. Isn't it amazing? And Jesus said, you see this temple? Tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they said, you're crazy. It took over 46 years to build this temple. And you would rebuild it in three days? And John writes, but they did not understand that Jesus spoke of his own body in his resurrection. You see, he is the true temple. There was a temple Solomon built, and it was torn down by Babylonians. Then there was a temple that Nehemiah built and Ezra built. And then the Herods came and added to it. But it was torn down by the Romans. And there is a third temple that some are still waiting to be built. But I will tell you that Jesus himself has already told us who that third temple is. He said, it's me. It's my body. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will dwell in them and walk among them. On the 15th day of the seventh month, Israel was commanded to celebrate what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's the feast that commemorates the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and dwelling in booths. But more, booths, but more importantly, it is the feast that commemorates God tabernacling with his people. Because it was God who led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night that led his people for 40 years in the wilderness and they slept under the stars and they slept in tents, they slept in booths. And on the Feast of Booths, all Israel is commanded to come together at Jerusalem and to build little booths and leave the top open so when they lay there at night, they can see the stars. And it's a reminder that they dwelt in the wilderness under the stars for 40 years and God was with them. God tabernacled with them. The Apostle Paul writes, And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is fulfilled today in Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? Well, he is at the right hand of God the Father. But the scripture also says that Christ in you is the hope of glory, Colossians 1.26. Now, how can Jesus be at the right hand of the Father and be in you at the same time? Because he dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God in three persons. And God the Son dwells in you. God 
dwells in you by the Holy Spirit that is in you. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled because here you are, the tabernacle of God, the temple of God. And guess who dwells within you? The Bible says God does. That's why we should honor our temples. That's why we should take care of our temples. That's why we should be aware of this reality. God has given us a gift that is amazing. He has come and He has dwelt among us. He has declared this, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Christ, we are chosen. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. We are the temple of the living God, the tabernacle of His presence in the earth today. The presence of God dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And by grace, through faith, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ has eternally cleansed us from the stain of sin and made us holy and acceptable to the Father. So now in Christ, we are not trying to become clean. The Bible says you are clean. We have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We are not trying to atone for our sin. Our sin is eternally atoned for in Jesus. In Christ, we are not just clean. We are a new creation. I want you to hear this. It's not just that we've been cleansed. Because we can be clean and we can get dirty again. You can take a bath when you get home and you go outside and roll around the mud and you're going to need another bath. But the cleansing that cleanses us in Jesus Christ is not just the cleansing of taking a bath and getting dirt off of us. It's a cleansing that does more than than clean us. It makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you are in Christ, you are new. You might not feel new up here. You might not think new up here. And this is why Throughout the scripture, we are commanded to renew our mind to the word of God. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, you have the mind of Christ. But we also have a mind that's unrenewed. And we need to renew our mind to the mind of Christ. We have a body still under the ravages of sin. That's why we're all dying. That's why we're all suffering from various ailments, some of them more obvious than others. But every one of us are dying here today. Barring the return of Jesus, we will all go by way of the grave because these bodies are still under the curse. But guess what part of me is not under the curse? 
My spirit has been made brand new in Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this in his letter to 2 Corinthians. Right before he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He says in that same chapter, he says the outward man perishes, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. We groan living in this earthly tent, this earthly tabernacle, desiring to, not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed. With what? With the glory of the Lord. And we're going to put off this mortality one day and put on immortality. Physically, not just spiritually, not just in our, in our minds, in our hearts. Our spirits are made brand new in Jesus. Our souls, our mind, our wills, our emotions are being renewed. It should be. If you're washing your mind with the Word of God, this is why we encourage you to do the Bible reading challenge. Wash your mind every day with the Word of God because as you wash your mind with the Word of God, you know what that Word is doing? It's renewing you. It's renewing your mind. It's transforming you. It's not just becoming clean, it's becoming new. In Christ, we become new creations. And in that new creation, we have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ. We're no longer bound by sin, we've been set free from sin. And in that new creation, we have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ. So now we are free to walk according to the spirit, no longer fulfilling the lust of the flesh. In Christ, we're given new hearts. And out of our new hearts, we have new desires. It doesn't mean we can't have wrong desires because we do. But guess what I couldn't have before when I was dead in sin? I had no good desires. I had no godly desires. I had nothing but sin and death and darkness. Now, God awakens me through the new birth, through the power of his gospel, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. He awakens me, gives me a new heart. And he gives me the mind of Christ and he says, now renew your mind, wash it with the water and be conformed to the Son of God. And transform your wrong desires into right desires. You couldn't do anything but desire sin before. Now you have a desire for righteousness. So pursue righteousness. You were a slave to sin before, but God has set us free in Jesus Christ that we might present our members, the very members of our bodies, as slaves to God, slaves of righteousness. These new hearts and these new desires does not mean we have no struggle with sin. That's the point. Now we can struggle against sin. We couldn't do that before. We can struggle against it. We can resist it. And we can win. We had no power to win before because we were dead in it. It defined who we were. Before, when we were dead in our sin, there was no struggle. We were simply dead in sin and we had no struggle with it. We had no problem with it. No desire to be free from it. 
We were totally dead in our sin and completely and contently consumed by it. But when Christ sets us free from sin and death, He gives us new hearts. And now our new heart has the willingness and the capacity to submit to God, to resist sin, to resist the devil. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and He will flee from you. You know why he flees from you? Because you belong to Jesus. Not because he's scared of you, but because Jesus has already defeated him. Because he has no power over you in Jesus. Now in Christ, we have eyes to see the destruction and hearts and minds to feel the pain of sin. In Christ, we can resist sin in prayer, and we can walk according to the Spirit and no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. In Christ, we are given the grace to repent for our sin and trust God for His promise to heal us from sin's destruction. This is the very promise God gave to Solomon. It was the point of me reading to you 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Verse 14, this is not just the promise God gave to Solomon. This is the promise God gives to all of his people. Let me read to you 2 Chronicles chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place. God was speaking of the temple. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or when I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Let me just read to you before I go any farther. Let me read to you from John chapter 2, verse 19, beginning of verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 18. Because I want you to catch the promise God's making here to His people, recorded for us in Second Chronicles. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to Him, Now this is after Jesus had come in and He had driven out the money changers, overturned their tables, made a mess of everything, and the religious leaders were in an uproar. And this is at the time of the Passover. 
Not the Passover where he would be crucified. But this was the Passover, three Passovers, two Passovers before. It would be two Passovers later that Jesus would be crucified. So this is the first Passover after his baptism and after he begins his earthly ministry. He comes into the temple and he overturns the tables. He makes a mess of everything. And the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you do? What sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, by whose authority do you come in here and do this? And Jesus And and so the Jews answered to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus, verse 19, answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That was the answer of Jesus. What sign do you show us that you do these things? And the answer of Jesus was, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20, the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. What did Jesus refer to his body as? The temple of God. Where has God chosen for his name to dwell forever? In his temple. There was a temple in Jerusalem. God says, that's the place I've chosen for my my name to dwell. But what was that temple, remember? Like the tabernacle, it was a copy. It was a shadow that pointed us to what? The true temple. Who is the true temple? Jesus is. Guess what the Bible says you are? Living stones, lively stones being built up into what? God's house, God's temple. Guess what you are? According to the Bible, you are the temple of the living God. I thought you just said, Pastor Jeff, that Jesus is the temple. Yes, he is. But you just said, I'm the temple. Yes, you are. Because what does the Bible call you? The body of Christ. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And we believe that when we take that bread and we take that cup, the presence of God is with us. How is he with us? How is Jesus present with us? Because his body is here. Not in the bread, but in you. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the place that God has chosen for his name to dwell forever. Jesus is the place that God has chosen for his name to dwell forever. And you have been given the name of Jesus because you belong to him, because you are one with him, because you've been joined to him by death and by resurrection. Because he has put his very life in you. It is no longer I who lives, Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You are the place God has chosen for his name to dwell forever. And God said... 
when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or the locusts come, or the pestilence comes, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. In what place? In the place that God has chosen for his name to dwell forever. It's not in Jerusalem anymore on a mountain. You are the temple of God. You are the place. And so is every other believer on the face of this earth and in heaven. Because Jesus was always the one in whom God's name would dwell forever. And when you were joined to Jesus, you were joined to him and made one with him. And you became the same the dwelling place of God, the place that God has chosen to put his name. And God says, when prayer is made from this place, I will hear. This is why you should never, ever doubt that God hears your prayers. If you are in Christ, if you have received the name of God, if God has put his name on you, and he has, if you are born again and you are a child of God, you have the name of God, his name dwells in you, and God has promised that he will hear your prayer. Don't ever think he won't, because it wasn't what you did to cause God to hear his, your prayer. It's what Jesus did. You didn't atone for your sin. Jesus atoned for your sin. You didn't cleanse yourself with your blood or the blood of an animal. Jesus cleansed you with his very own blood. And by grace, through faith, he has put his name in you. And you now are the place that God has put his name. And you now are the place that God says, My I will see and my ear will be attentive to the prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house. Say this house. Say this house. That my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually Don't you ever think that God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, and God doesn't know because he does. In the depths of your darkness, in the depths of your pain, in the depths of your suffering, God sees, God hears, God knows. Pam, there wasn't a second when you had that stroke that God was not perfectly aware and was present with you the whole time. That is the promise God makes to his children. Repentance is an act of turning from our sin and turning to God. This is what God promises us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I want to talk to you about repentance for a moment. We're living in a time when we need repentance more than ever. We watch the news, we read the headlines, and we think about the wickedness. I say it all the time. I say, those people in Washington are wicked. And I mean all of them. 
But you know, there's a danger in that because what I'm doing is I'm standing here and I'm pointing my finger at someone. When the Bible says what I really should be doing is looking into my own heart. Repentance is when God's people humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways. When we were dead in sin, separated from God, repentance was meaningless to us. Now in Christ, we have by grace the desire and the power to repent for our sin and see the healing hand of God come upon us and come upon our land. Because Christ is in us, we are the salt that preserves this earth. Because Christ is in us, we are the light of the world in the darkness Today, because of Christ, we can make a difference in our world and we are commanded to do just that. God did not save us so so that we could sit and sour on a couch or in a pew. He did not save us so that we could be busy about our own business. No, He saved us that we would be busy about His business. We have been saved for the business of the kingdom We've been saved for the business of seeing His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The business of preaching and living and making known the gospel of Jesus Christ through the very fabric of our daily life. From washing dishes to changing diapers to to running your business to being faithful in your job, whatever it is, from mowing the grass, whatever it is, from taking care of yourself and your temple, We have been saved for the business of being and of making disciples and the business of learning to obey all that he has commanded and the business of teaching others to do the same. This is the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptized into Christ, being a disciple should become like breathing. Breathing is not something you have to think about or make yourself do. You just do it. It's a natural part of your life a very important part of your life. We're called to be disciples. That means to live a lifestyle in Christ that is as natural and as vital as breathing oxygen. Discipleship is first about our own life before it is ever about anyone else's. All repentance is personal. Repentance must occur one heart at a time. I used to work with a man named Herman Rice. We used to, I was privileged to get to travel over various parts of the country fighting drugs. Up with hope, down with dope. Herman was a very tall black man from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who went across this land driving out drug dealers from neighborhoods. It's a long story, but I got connected with Herman because Herman came here to Taylor and literally transformed this community in ways that many people today don't even realize because they weren't here back then. But we had this saying, taking back America one neighborhood at a time. We had a shirt that had the shape of America, and it was made by this by that statement. Taking back America one neighborhood at a time. The power of the gospel and the power of repentance from sin works in a similar way. It must work 
one heart at a time. We talk about national repentance. We need national repentance. But all repentance must be personal. We pray for our nation. We seek national repentance. But that can only happen one heart at a time. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I say, and I say it a lot, pray for our nation. And I mean pray for our nation. But that can be kind of nebulous. And if we're not careful, that prayer has absolutely no effect because we're praying pointing to other people and other people's problems while ignoring our own. And that's not the way repentance works. There will never be any repentance if our repentance is focused on other people repenting and we don't repent ourselves. Thus all repentance has to be personal. The danger of national repentance is that it bypasses or overshadows personal repentance. All national sin is simply accumulation of personal sin. A nation's sins are the sins of the people who are that nation. Thus, all repentance must be personal. C.S. Lewis dealt with this during World War II. And he wrote about this in 1940 as Britain was praying for God to have mercy as it looked like the Germans, the Germans had already taken over all of Europe. And the only thing that saved Britain was the English Channel. And Britain was praying, God have mercy. And they called for national repentance. And here's what Lewis said, the first and fatal charm of national repentance is therefore the encouragement it gives us to turn from the bitter task of repenting our own sins. Lewis goes on to conclude that we end up denouncing the conduct of others without repenting of our own. This is very easy to do in modern day America as we are assaulted with news headlines and tweets and quotes and opinions constantly. But we need to be very careful that we don't fall into this trap that Lewis talked about. That we become so focused on others' sins that we forget our own. All repentance must be personal. The Day of Atonement called the nation together to seek God's forgiveness. God commanded the nation to assemble each person and to afflict their souls. Each person. I didn't read it to you, but you can go back and read Leviticus 16. The penalty for not afflicting your soul on the Day of Atonement was death. Here's how God made sure that the the nation of Israel understood that their repentance had to be personal. He said, because you need to personally afflict your soul. And in that personal affliction of your soul, you need to be reminded of your own sin and your own repentance that is necessary before God. It was a call to the nation, but it was first a call to each individual to humble themselves before God in repentance.
Repentance and prayer must begin in the heart of each person. That means it must begin in my heart first. I can't call you to repentance until I call myself to repentance. Before I call you to pray, I must be committed myself to pray. I must pray and seek repentance for my own sin. And that's the only way what we may call national repentance. That's the only way national repentance or whatever that might be. That's the only way it will ever be accomplished is that it start personally in each one of us. It must begin in each of our own hearts first, not looking to the sin of others, but to our own sin. And if we see no sin in our heart, we need to look further in, for it is there. Ask God, He will reveal not only our sin, but the way to be free from it in Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is our eternal atonement for sin. The way has been made. Jesus has atoned for our sin, not just now, but for eternity. Look to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He is the way to life. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only hope we have personally, corporately, and nationally. May we be a people who will heed the scripture and turn to the Lord in prayer and trust Him to bring the healing that only He can bring. Amen. Let's get ready and come to the table. By the way, this feast that is very solemn, very serious, is followed by a feast that is the epitome of joy. In fact, even as God commanded Israel to afflict their souls on atonement, He commands them during tabernacles to rejoice for seven days. And there's a pattern there. There is a pattern there. So don't fear. With affliction comes rejoicing. The rejoicing of God's salvation. I invite you to come to the table, to come to Jesus. Let's all stand. We're living in a time when national repentance is needed as much as ever before, but there is no such thing as national repentance. Repentance is always personal and it is always individual, just as sin is. Even the toleration of sin that we are not directly involved in is a personal matter of the heart. Our heart either tolerates it to the point we will not resist it, or our heart resists it even when we have no power to change it in others. I pray we will enter into a season of humility and repentance before God so that we may enter into a season of rejoicing for the salvation that He alone can provide. Amen.